Hey, welcome to Life 2.0 Podcast. I'm John St. Augustine. Glad to have you joining me from anywhere and everywhere around planet Earth. Time to go up the down staircase in the outdoor. Make sense out of the senseless. If all possible, we'll find the obvious buried in the absurd. Let's do it. By now, the tryptophan from the turkey should have worn off. This is Saturday, just a couple of days removed from Thanksgiving and uh, the gorge fest that takes place for most of us. I was thinking about it because um, I usually think of things in certain contexts, like in historical context. And I was watching the Macy's Day Parade on Thanksgiving morning for just a few minutes. Of course, when I was a kid, it was such a big deal to see Charlie Brown floating down Fifth Avenue, followed by Snoopy and maybe Linus or Lucy. Uh, obviously today it's kind of like, okay, so it was more commercials than, than, uh, than parade, uh, but what would the pilgrims have thought <laughs> and who even knew how it really all went down, uh, back on, you know, Plymouth rock when they got here and then the first Thanksgiving and all that went around that, but what we have done with everything that comes along our way, any sort of holiday or celebration gets commercialized to the nth degree. But when you just think about the concept of giving thanks, which costs nothing, kind of powerful. I don't recall where I heard it, but I did hear that uh, if all you ever said was thanks as a prayer, that's enough. You don't have to get elaborate. You don't have to call in the uh, the big guns. You just got to say thank you for all I've been given and all that I have. And I think sometimes, I don't think sometimes, I think all the time, whether we like it or not, we have to give thanks for the things that we don't have and the things that did not happen for us. You know, those unanswered prayers, as it were, this holiday season is difficult for many people um, outside of what we see on television. And the one thing that's already started to irritate me, which means I limit my TV viewing big time during the holiday season is Christmas commercials that are three, four, five years old. You know, they, they run these things. That, you know, the best thing you can do is buy each other a truck on Christmas. Is that a fact? Um, but all that aside, uh, the, the celebratory stuff that kind of gets in the way and when it gets distilled down, uh, comes down to simple thank you for what I have and what even what I don't have. As I'm thinking about how difficult the season is for people when there's people that were in their lives before that are not here anymore. And, you know, we all have that to some greater or lesser degree. And empathy allows, if you have that empathy muscle in your life where you can understand how other people feel, even though you've not walked exactly in their shoes, you know how it feels. Because, for example, if you've lost someone uh, that used to be at your table and they're not there, it's it's a gaping hole, it's a gaping wound. And in all of that, uh, I started to think about what this morning's podcast would be about. And it's, it's maybe a bit of a stretch to pull these two together, but I'm going to make it an attempt to do that. Over the years, many years, 20, 30 years now, um, I've spent time with hundreds of people in what I call the question session. And I'm not exactly sure where this started as a formal exercise for me, but I can tell you where it started for me personally. I've mentioned before, I've written about it in books. Um, my mom was an alcoholic and my dad was the enabler. You need to, some, the alcoholic needs an enabler. The, we all need enablers to play the tug of war game as, in human relationships. But specifically when it comes to being an alcoholic, somebody's pouring the drinks for you. 
And if you're pouring your own drinks, that's that's a pretty tough road too. But there's usually somebody in there that enables these people to stay the way that they are. And for me growing up, watching this dynamic, half the time, if not three quarters of the time, my folks were great people, outgoing, wonderful, terrific providers. But then there's that quarter of the time where it was just a shit show. And the shit show always kind of overshadowed the good stuff, especially at the holidays. And I never understood till many years later, and, I, and to some degree don't even totally understand now why my mom drank. In the early years, I thought it must be me. As a little kid, you're thinking, oh, I must have done something wrong. And it must be me that, that, that's causing this. And how do I become better? Which is so not true. But I took that on. And I think a lot of people take that on. When you're a kid and your parents in, are in difficulty, you want them to be better or feel better. You want to take that away. Of course, that's not possible. Because the reason she was drinking with an S uh, were long before I was born. And I'll get to that in a minute. So there's that first part. Then the second part, as I got older, I just got angry. You know, I dreaded the holidays to some greater or lesser degree because I knew what was ahead. And I had gone from uh, wanting to fix it to I give a shit. If this is what you want to do, then this is what you do. And then that lasted for many, many years. It wasn't until, oh my gosh, I don't know, I was probably 30, 35 years old at the time by the, you know, when... When I really got down to the nitty gritty with my mom and dad and um, over years that they've been gone, that's changed a bit because I see them in a different context. I had no empathy for them whatsoever. Here's the deal. You're my parents. You're supposed to be perfect. You're supposed to get your shit in one sock. And that's just the way it's supposed to be. It's supposed to be like happy days. It's supposed to be like the Waltons. It's supposed to be like X, Y, and Z. It's supposed to be like, you know, this family that I know or this family that I know. Well, I might not have even known the dynamic in that family that I knew, but I, I saw the outside, just like people saw the outside of my, my family. So it's all this stuff gets mixed up. And it's hard to dis, you know, dissect it and pull it apart, make any kind of sense out of it. And I remember on Easter, would have been 1983 maybe, I was in the service and I was taking this uh, course over two weekends and a weeknight called EST, Earhart Seminar Trainings. I had read about it, about this advancements in understanding human behavior, mostly my own, and what makes me tick. And up to that point, I really wasn't very interested in all that stuff. But it's like being a mechanic on a car, you know? I mean, we used to have these books called Chilton's, C-H-I-L-T-O-N-S, Chilton's Auto Manuals. And every car had a Chilton's book. And every book of Chilton's had everything you need to know about a 1970 Impala. Every, from the firing order of the spark plugs down to the tire size and air pressure and everything in between. And we don't come with manuals, at least not ones we can see. And we're re- working and wading through tons of crap, not only our shit from being here alive, but also everybody that came before us, that stuff all runs downhill. I don't care who you are, it all runs downhill. And while we might even look like our parents to some greater or lesser degree, everything gets passed along. So I go to this Earhart seminar training, kind of going into it blind, just read a couple articles about it. And uh, it was an evisceration to say the least, one I needed. It was um, about 250 people in a ballroom in a hotel. And you know, you can participate fully or not at all. You could just sit there like a slugger. You could get up and rant and rave at the world. So all these pieces were going on. And at one point, I remember the guy who was running the deal got up and said something like, you're the sum total of your parents' parts. And I don't think he just bent their private parts. 
that if you're not an aware person and you're unconscious for the most part, you'd simply become that which influenced you the most. And if the biggest influences in your life are something that have been difficult, challenging, you know, low energy, that type of stuff, then you just take that on and you become that person that raised you to some greater or lesser degree. And that struck home with me. Listen, anybody that's been around me knows I can knock back some serious wild turkey. Never used it as a crutch to feel better. And I think that was the thing I learned about my mom, that the things that had taken place in her life that were too difficult or painful for her to deal with, at some point alcohol came in and made her feel better. And once that takes place, that which was your friend in the beginning, in her case alcohol, eventually becomes your worst enemy. So you skip over what actually happened, the difficulty, the challenge, the experience, the pain, whatever, and you'd use something to take the edge off. And people do a use a lot of things. You can use shopping to do that. Everything can become an addiction. So for my mom, it was alcohol. And then you never end up dealing with the shit that caused the problem in the first place. Then the secondary thing comes along and alcohol becomes a bigger problem than the problem itself. I was very well aware of that. So I can enjoy the bourbon on ice and I often do, but I've never once had a, a thought that I need to pour a drink to feel better about fill in the blank. And that comes directly out of my experience of the way I grew up and that first training that I took and then everything subsequent to that that I have worked very hard on to find my maintenance manual, my owner's manual for myself and write it myself and, and be understanding of what was downloaded into me and what I need to jettison to become the person that I decided to be, that I choose to be. It's been a lot of work, but it's been so worth it. I am no longer a victim of circumstance, as Curly would say. And so many people are a victim of circumstance. So I go to this training and at one point I stood up and I said, are you trying to tell me that there's nothing I can do to help my mom not be, you know, be an alcoholic? He goes, oh, there's something you can do. It just won't change anything. And I said, well, what could I do? And he said, just go buy her liquor. It's what she likes the most. I was almost at the F word here. Even that, I, I could say it because it's a podcast, but even my good taste stopped me. I said, you got to be shitting me. It was like this ridiculous thing, but then I realized it's not so ridiculous. It had become the thing that she craved the most, the thing that, that gave her the most pleasure and the least amount of pain. It had basically taken over her life in so many levels that eventually it became like a parasitic twin for her and a very difficult thing to dislodge. So at the break of that training, I went and called my parents on a payphone on Easter Sunday in 1982-83. And I jammed it right up their backsides. You know, I mean, I reamed them out. First, my dad gets on the phone and I said, listen, dad, as I recall some of this, it's Easter Sunday and blah, 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 blah. And I'm at this training and this is what happened. And I just went to, and I just unloaded on this guy on the phone. And that, I don't know how long that went on. And I said, now put mom on the phone. And then she got on the phone and I unloaded on her. And I felt better because the pressure had, had decreased immensely in me. And that we didn't talk for probably six, eight months. And then at some point, I started to realize something. That these two people had done the best they could with where they, where they were at the time with what they had. Neither one of them 
had ever opened up or even thought they had an owner's manual. Neither one of them. To my knowledge, we had hundreds of books in our house, not one about how to become a better human being or anything close to that. And back in the 50s and 60s and 70s, the 70s, it was just kind of starting to come around. That was not a priority. Even though there were books there that were written, like Think and Grow Rich was written in the 1930s, I believe, um, they did not connect with that. And they just connected with what was at the topical pieces of the time, which was alcohol. And that was it. So it became the dominant force in my mom's life, enabled by my father. And it was, like I said, it wasn't until as the years started to roll by that I started to have some empathy for them. That in some way, shape, or form, the choices they made were basically set in stone because of the way they were influenced when they were a kid. And those choices by their parents were influenced by their parents. And, blah, 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 blah. and you go all the way back. And just a quick digression here. I've mentioned maybe on this podcast, maybe I know I've done it on my radio shows over the years. I've talked with Jen Weigel about it on our John and Jen show, which is tomorrow, by the way, in Washington, D.C., on WCRW 1190 AM or online at www.newworldradionetwork.com. That's at noon central. Um, I've mentioned where I've gone into prisons, probably 15, 20 over the years, and I give a talk and try to connect with these guys about their owner's manual and talking about what put them in there, the circumstances that they created because they didn't know who they were from a, a higher place that put them in prison, basically, or creating, you know, committing crimes that put them in the jail. Some of these guys were getting out. I've gotten letters over the years from men and women who've gotten out of confinement and thanked me for what I said. Many of them are not getting out. So all it was is, is a simple way of, of giving them some sort of consciousness, whether they hang on to it or not, I don't know. It's my way of delivering the mail. Whether they read it or not, can't do that. But to me, that goes right back to me paying back what I've learned so other people may skip parts or at least understand that there's a different choice. The chance doesn't determine everything. Choices are important too. And one of the um, exercises that I do is align six, seven, eight of the biggest guys I can find. And that's five, six, seven generations back. And I give them this whole ex experiment about, you know, how things get passed down. They're all standing kind of nuts to butts with each other, and they're all in line facing one way. The guy in front of me is the latest guy in line who's alive today, and then there's his dad and his grandfather and great-grandfather and great-great-grandfather and all the way back. And for them, as with many people, preponderance of this is alcohol problems that become other problems. And as soon as I ask how many of men in here in this line had a problem with alcohol that you were witness to in your life, that your parents were alcoholics, they all raise their hand. So I go all the way back six, seven generations, and I have, now here's the alcohol thing being passed down, click, 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 and they put their right hand on the guy's shoulder in front of him, and it goes right down the line like dominoes to get to the guy at the end. And then I say, but they also did some things that were incredible. You must have seen something redeeming in these people as well that was different than what you were, that they were showing while they were drinking or were doing drugs or whatever. And they all put their hands up. Of course we did. So they the left hand goes on everybody's shoulder in front of them. Now you got two hands on the shoulder in front of the guy in front of you. All of that gets passed down to the person who's alive today. Nobody in front of them. No one for them to put their hands on yet. And the enormous responsibility or the ability to respond for us today, who are those who are left from those who have come before us, what was passed down, is paramount in my opinion. 
It is the thing about human behavior that I found the most challenging, daunting, and exciting at the same time. We have, each one of us, every one of you listening to this podcast around the world, and myself today as a reminder, that every day is paramount on how you're going to either react or respond. You're going to be you know, active or reactive. That is the thing. If you're a reactive person, you stay in perpetual victim mode because there's always something going on in the world that makes you feel bad and you're a victim of it. But if you're an active person or someone who is a responding person, you see these things outside of you as not something to piss you off, but to move you forward if possible, or just ignore. There's nothing worse than the perpetual reactor. Always a victim of something, always something going wrong, always something bad. But someone who is responding or someone who can be active in their own life, those things don't matter. Listen, it's so easy. There's a bajillion channels on it'll tell you everything's going wrong in the world. Everything. And if you cherry pick it, you become reactive. Oh my God, I can't believe this. Again, the murders again. Nothing new here, kids. It doesn't mean I don't have empathy for the people that, that the families, what they go through and all that kind of stuff. But the, I will not become a victim of that crime as well over and over and over again. I find it so fascinating that we turn on the news and see these horrible things that humans are doing to each other. And when the news is over, the next three television shows are all about murder, bombing, mayhem. It's criminal this and horror this and murder this. And this is amazing. We just keep recreating this cycle. So my work even though it's in disguise of radio to some greater or less degree, and even the books that I write, but certainly radio, is to say there's another choice here. You just may not know that. And so working with people over the years with this question session comes out of that for me. That I had always wished that somebody would have sat down with my mom because I was too close and that wasn't going to happen. Even though there was one time my dad would call me when something was going wrong. You know what that feels like to be the guy in the middle when your parents can't get their shit together and they're calling, my dad's calling me saying, can you come over and help? What, wait, what? You're the parents here. Well, that's just in name only. So my dad called me one time and I, I don't know exactly what was going on, but I, I pulled up to the house and he's out in front working on his car, which means he just doesn't want to be in the house. Probably nothing really to do with the car. And I said, dad, what's going on now? And he, I, whatever the deal was, I don't recall. And he says, but there's only two people your mom will listen to. You and Oprah. So this must have been in the 80s, early 90s. And no pressure there. Who knew I'd go on to work with Oprah for four or five years at Oprah Radio? But it was just this odd thing. You're The only two people in the world my mom's going to listen to are Oprah Winfrey and her son. And I remember walking in and uh, asking my mom what was going on. She gave me this whole litany of, of problems that were things that were wrong with my dad. <laughs> all the problem is if your dad would just change these things, I'd be better. And when I, of course, when I want to talk to my dad, he gives me the laundry list of all the shit that's wrong with my mom. And if she would only fix these things, he'd be better. No bridge there, no connecting points there, no common ground there, no conversation there. So the pain gets deeper. The drinks get more frequent. Eventually my mom passed away at the age of 59. Alcoholism a malady of other uh, medical problems all brought on by the alcohol and all that kind of stuff. And of course, my dad was heartbroken. And also, he didn't know what to do without her. He'd been an enabler for so long, there was nobody to enable. He didn't know who he was. And 
I was not there when my mom passed. I was in Michigan at the time, but I had an amazing dream uh, that she came to me twice within hours of this happening. And uh, it was just profound to me. So I knew she, who she was, the soul of my mom, Carol, was okay. It was all the physical stuff in this lifetime that she went through that I saw eventually as her soul's opportunity to grow. Whether she did or didn't is not up for me to decide. And same thing for my father. I see all of this, pretty much all of this, as opportunities in disguise to grow all of this shit. You know, you plant stuff in the garden and you got to put shit in there to make it grow. Fertilizer. We, we spent billions of dollars on fertilizer. I just put a bunch out this before winter. So the garden's better next year. You got to sh put shit out constantly for the gardens to grow. And our life is like that. It's the shit that makes us grow, not the easy stuff. The shit makes you grow or not. And the harder the shit, the deeper the shit, the worse the shit, the bigger the opportunity to become something different through the transformation process. I've never had this conversation with my parents. Of course, you know, like I said, my mom died 25 years ago. My dad died in 04. And, but before he passed, we had a similar conversation that I'm having with you now about awareness. And I asked him at one point, because questions are vitally important in life. It's why I call that thing I do called the question session. Because most people ask the wrong questions. They're looking in the wrong direction. So when you can find someone who's impartial to both parties and sit down and go, I have a few questions for you. They always answer themselves, but they never ask the questions of themselves. I have no dog in the fight either way. So it doesn't matter to me whether you're right or wrong, up or down, but it becomes apparent very quickly when you ask the right questions to people, they give up the information and pretty soon it's like, where the hell has this been my life? It's been buried under the bullshit. So I remember sitting with my dad on my sister's porch. He was living with her after my mom passed. And in his garage, he had everything from the one house I grew up in ended up in my sister's garage and everything we pulled out. It was like, you know, walking through his whole life history. Every tie tech, every award, every picture, we were going through this stuff. And he would tell me about these things. And pretty soon, I got a pretty fair assessment of why my dad was who he was. Not just professionally, which I kind of already knew where that came from, but personally, why he assumed the role that he assumed that enabled my mom to become the alcoholic. He simply wanted her to be happy. And the reason that came from is because his mom and dad divorced and his mom was very unhappy. My grandmother, though, never was an alcoholic. She just wielded a pretty good, uh, you know, rolling pin at times. But he wanted her to be happy. And so I think a guy named Terry Real said this first that I know of. You always marry your unfinished business. <clears throat> Get that. And I think you can expand that to your closest personal relationships are your unfinished business. The things that are in there that can help you come out and become better than you were when you went in. And so I'm listening to my dad go through all this stuff. It becomes very apparent to me that all he wanted was a, a, a woman in his life to be happy. And it, drinking made my mom really happy, joyful. Obviously, there was a downside. And you don't see the downside because you only see what's, what's in the moment. Over time, as I said, your friend becomes your enemy and basically takes you out. So we had that talk before my dad passed, and that was a good thing. And we were at peace with each other when he uh, took his last breath, and that's a very good thing. And I realized 
that if I just look at the men that came before me, through no fault of their own, putting hands on shoulders on the way down the row, that I had the huge opportunity to be the breakout, to do something different than the men that had come before me had done, to a greater or lesser degree. It's been a lifelong slog to do that. I don't always get it right. Maybe 50, 50, maybe 75, 25, something like that. But I'm conscious of it, which is different than being an unconscious human being, which is where, unfortunately, I think so many people spend their time. They are reacting to circumstances as opposed to seeing the value in the circumstances and what can come out of them as a growth pattern. So the question session, you know, just to toss something out, it doesn't really work unless you train yourself to do it over and over again, one-on-one with your own mind. But one of the questions I always ask people is how specifically or why specifically or when specifically? Because our mind is gone with the amount of information and disinformation and all the rest of the shit that runs down our central nervous system, we very often do not get into specifics. Everything's bad. Really? How specifically are they bad? And by the time you chisel all that shit away, well, maybe it's not so bad. So those questions are vital. And so when I do these shows, I try to couch this stuff, even though I don't come out and say it directly about, listen, even though it's a shitstorm, let's keep it in some effing context, shall we? It's always been a shitstorm. You think it's never been bad? Read a history book. And then you can have some perspective and context about what's going on in the world as we inhabit it today. You want to switch places with somebody in 1918 during the, you know, the uh, Spanish flu? Well, I mean, we've already done that again. You want to go into World War II and see what it was like to be bombed? I mean, we weren't there, but they're People before us were there, and you wonder why this stuff gets passed down. So in all of that, I'm going to make a book recommendation for you, which I rarely do. And this only comes out of the fact that I was taking books to Goodwill this past week, which I don't often do, maybe once every two years. As an author, I have an inordinate amount of respect for anything that ends up between the covers of a book, for the most part. I don't read it all, but I have respect to the process. And many, many years ago, uh, I came across a book by a guy named David R. Hawkins, Power Versus Force is the title, The Hidden Determinants of Human Behavior. And as I was going through the books this past week to take to goodwill, uh, always keeping in mind, well, if I, I don't want to get rid of this book. I may need it someday, but somebody may need it at goodwill walking by for a dollar more than I do. And so I was going through books that came across David's book. And I remembered when I had him on the radio a couple times back in the day, I'd have to really, really dig to see if there's any tapes. He's passed away now quite a few years ago. But he was talking about this concept of power versus force. That to be powerful in who you are and having your owner's manual to a greater or lesser degree intact makes you self-authenticating, self-aware, powerful in your own right as a human being. Force is you're trying to force your shit on everybody else all the time, and it comes to nothing. That's the simple breakdown. And he has this scale that he he works with called the courage scale. And he's able to use on an energetic level from zero to like a thousand, uh, what is the best place to inhabit yourself as long as you possibly can. And at the very bottom, of course, is death. There's no energy there. You're gone. Right above that, where a lot of people live at the 20% level, is shame. About You know how many times in my life when I was a kid I was shameful about how my parents were? I hope nobody found out. Probably for 
10 years. I had, I used lying as a default. It was a deflector. And so if somebody would ask me about my parents, I would lie about something to get them off track. It was, it was a total firewall for about 10 years. And then one time I, and then it bec that became a habit that was not good. So I'm being very open and honest here, very open book stuff here. And I remember a friend of mine, uh, was his, his wife had passed away. And somehow I thought I needed to equate that with me being in difficulty health-wise, and I wasn't. And it almost cost me a friendship, and that's when it stopped. And I realized that here's my mom had alcohol as her default mechanism to make her feel better. So what did I adapt? And a lot of children of alcoholics do this, that they come up with fabrication or a lie to deflect things. Because God forbid anybody find out how my parents really are. There was a lot of shame around that. At the next level of 30% in energy is guilt. Walking around feeling guilty about stuff all the time that may or may not have been your fault. Above that is apathy, that you just don't give a shit. This is where most people live. Guilt, apathy, shame. You can't really create anything better out of that by living in that. Then you have grief right above the apathy. Then you have fear, which is rampant. But even more rampant than fear is anger. And Anger to me comes from expectations that fall short. And while life is painful, it's real. Expectations very rarely line up with your reality. And that causes anger and fear. There's people think things should be a certain way. And when they're not that way, they get pissed off and they're, and they're fearful. And they act out of that. People in pain want other people to be in pain because that's how they recognize them. But the break point for all this, moving upwards... In your own owner's manual, which is kind of redundant, own owner's manual, but you get my drift, is courage. Or as the cowardly lion would say, courage. <laughs> courage to break away from the patterns that kept you where you're at. It's a courageous act, even if nobody around you gives a shit. And you have to look at, in context, the relationships you're in now with all the shit that's going on, that somewhere in that shit something's growing for the better, but you got to find it and have the courage to say, you know what? These are the circumstances, many of which I may not have created, but I'm having to deal with them. But if you deal with these circumstances, the level you came into them, it's like this. If you go, if you come out of the storm the same way you went in, you miss the whole point of the storm. Courage is the break point. That's at 200 level that you have the courage to make a change that nobody ahead of you have ever made before no matter what anybody else says. And above that becomes openness, that you're open to new things. Then becomes willingness, that you're willing to be open to new things. And then something really interesting kicks in. That, you know, like, you're not just a reactive human being any, anymore from all the headlines and the bullshit that goes on and spewing out stuff just left and right. That you're not just totally driven by your lower limbic system. But reason and logic start to take a paramount stage in your life. You're able to reason things out without throwing up all the time. That you have some sort of a logical piece in there that takes over and says, hold on a second. Let me look at this not one way, two ways, or three ways, but six ways. Let me take a little time with this. Let me not just be knee-jerk reacting to every effing thing that comes down the line. Above reason and logic is love. I love my parents. I wanted more for them. But they were unable to give that to themselves. So if they were unable to give it to themselves, they were totally unable to give it to me in the way that I expected it. 
but I love them anyway. Towards the end of my dad's life, and I, I was it was I wish I had the time with my mom, but I'm good with it. Is that I was able to tell them, and forgive him, and say, Dad, look, I get it. Once we had that day on my sister's porch, I saw all the stuff laid out. I got it. It was almost inevitable he would become who he was. I didn't have to do that. I did not recreate that in any of my relationships. I did not create having a relationship with someone who's an alcoholic to, quote, fix them. Other things, but not that. Above love becomes joy. Joyful to be alive. Listen, the odds of being born are one in 400 trillion. And your problem is what? The average life expectancy is 77.8. You get just over 28,000 days to be alive. I have less than 5,000 days if the life expectancy calendar holds up for me. I'm sure as shit not going to spend it on Democrat, Republican, or other. And I'll tell you exactly why. Once a week, I drive through a cemetery right near my home. I could walk there, but I drive because I'm out at the gym and doing stuff. And I always kind of cut through once a week as a reminder. All those names used to be people that were upright and breathing. They used to be vertical, now they're horizontal. And not once in all the decades I've gone to a cemetery have I ever seen Democrat or Republican or Independent on a freaking headstone. Not one time. And these people are all buried next to people they may not even like when they were alive. It's so silly. We're running out of time. Don't major in minor things. That gives me a sense of peace, which is at the 600 level on Dr. David Hawkins's courage scale. It gives me a sense of peace. Let me, let me just be real clear. I can't change the world, but I damn well can say whether the world's going to change me or not. And I've decided, no, that's not going to be the case. It vexes me when I see the stuff I, I catch on the news. I, I, I just amaze that, that we spend so much time, energy, and effort trying to separate ourselves from each other based on all these ridiculous things. But I'm at peace with it. Because it's always been this way. And when you get that perspective, a sense of peace comes over. I don't like it. I don't condone it. But I'm not going to be part of it. That leads to a small sense of enlightenment. I don't even know how to describe all that, except the ability to see things that most people don't. And I, look, my best grades in school were freaking lunch and gym. So if a guy like me can stop dragging his knuckles all the time and stand up right a little bit more, I think that there's value there. And finally, when you get to the, the top part of that 1,000 is the far end of enlightenment. That's where the great masters live. Uh, I, I don't expect to get there. Don't know that I want to be there. I'm happy with some sense of joy, obviously logic in my life and love and peace and being willing and open to say maybe there's another way. Maybe that what's going on here is an opportunity disguised as a liability. And when you can get to that point, no matter how old you are, or what circumstances you're in, or the difficulty that may or may not be knocking at your door, that's when things change. They don't change when it's easy. Things change when it's shitty. That's the deal. So, the book is called Power Versus Force, The Hidden Determinants of Human Behavior by David R. Hawkins, MD, the late, great David R. Hawkins. If I can ever come up with that tape, I think it'd be interesting to run some of that. Before I send you off, I want to share this uh, article that was written by Sidney J. Harris back in 1960. A couple friends of mine uh, over the years have sent it to me, and it was in the back of my mind as I was getting ready to do this podcast, so I will leave you with this. Again, Sidney J. Harris wrote this in 1960 for the, it was the Chicago paper, I believe. 
I walked with my friend to the newsstand the other night and he bought a paper thanking the newsie politely. The newsie didn't even acknowledge it. A sullen fellow, isn't he? I commented. Oh, he's that way every night, shrugged my friend. Then why do you continue to be so polite to him? I asked. Well, why not? inquired my friend. Why should I let him decide how I'm going to act? As I thought about this incident later, it occurred to me that the important word was act. My friend acts towards people. Most of us react towards people. He has a sense of inner balance which is lacking in most of us. He knows who he is, what he stands for, and how he should behave. He refuses to return incivility for incivility because then he would no longer be in command of his own conduct. When we are enjoined in the Bible to return good for evil, we look upon this as a moral injunction, which it is. But it's also a psychological prescription for our own emotional health. Nobody is unhappier than the perpetual reactor. His center of emotional gravity is not rooted within himself, where it belongs, but in the world outside of him. His spiritual temperature is always being raised or lowered by the social climate around him, and he is a mere creature at the mercy of these elements. Praise gives him a great feeling, which is false, because it does not last and does not come from self-approval. Criticism depresses him more than it should, because it confirms his own secret shaky opinion of himself. Snubs hurt him, and the merest suspicion of unpopularity in any quarter rouses him to bitterness. A serenity of spirit cannot be achieved until we become the masters of our own actions and attitudes. To let another determine whether we shall be rude or gracious, elated or depressed, is to relinquish control over our own personalities, which is ultimately all we possess. The only true possession is self-possession. Until next time, be well, safe travels, adios.